Epicurus once said, freedom is the greatest fruit of self-sufficiency. Keeping that in mind, Robert Frost added, accept no one's definition of your life. Define yourself. Well, my guest today on the program, he has done just that. He has clearly defined himself, and he's been doing it his entire life. And as a result, he's basking in personal and professional freedom. Oh, and he's also one of the coolest dudes I've ever talked to. Can't wait for you to meet him. Who is it? Oh, you'll, you'll find out. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of my guest today on the program, Blake Morgan. Let me tell you a little bit about Blake Morgan. Now, before we begin, I've just got to say, Blake Morgan's resume has more highlights than a Mariano Rivera career retrospective. I mean, to synthesize everything he's done into a podcast introduction is impossible. So keep in mind, this is the expurgated version. But believe me when I tell you that whatever you're about to hear... There's a lot more where that came from. But for the sake of time and space, I'll do my best to keep it short. All right, let's get to it. Blake Morgan. The Manhattan-born Blake Morgan is a musician, a singer, an executive, a music producer, a writer, a record label owner, and an activist. Raised by activist parents who were also writers, his mother is the poet Robin Morgan and his father is the poet Kenneth Pitchford, Morgan was immersed early on in the arts. By five, he was playing the piano and playing Mozart and writing his own songs, and the classical pianist path was being forged. But then he heard the Beatles, and that path forked a different way. Educated at the United Nations International School in New York City and later Berklee College of Music, Morgan graduated and hit the ground running, playing in bands and living the rock and roll lifestyle. He signed a 70-year record deal with Phil Ramone's fledgling label in 96. His first album had Lenny Kravitz singing backup. He toured the U.S. and opened for Joan Jett and was getting tons of attention and critical acclaim. So all was going according to plan. In other words, Morgan was crushing it, but he was mistrustful of the corporate label life and he got himself out of the contract. Not an easy thing to do and a lot of people haven't done it, but Morgan did and I'll let him tell you about how he did it. Spoiler alert, it goes back to that Robert Frost quote about not letting people define who you are. In 2002, Blake Morgan decided to form Engine Company Records, which later became ECR Music in 2012. ECR now has an associate publishing company, and the music the label has released has ranged from punk to classical, and in 2005, they had five albums in the top 20. 
So Morgan was now working with other artists, but he kept cranking out great, critically acclaimed solo albums. From Burning Daylight to Silencer to Diamonds in the Dark to his new one, Violent Delights. Morgan's music is an irresistibly crunchy blend of melodic pop, introspective ballads, and hook-laden numbers that are played with muscle and heart. I love all of his albums, but the new one, Violent Delights, oof, that is a stone-cold classic. But let's get back to the heart. Morgan's heart is with artists, and his political activism is specifically on their behalf. His Pandora takedown alone cost the company's stock to fall $130 million in less than a day, and it signaled a major victory for musicians. Morgan's not messing around. He spent hours with Congress fighting for the rights of musicians, which are always being marginalized, especially in the digital age. Just Google his art and music are professions worth fighting for essay, and you'll get a sense of who this guy is. Actually, before you do that, listen to this conversation. You'll really get a sense of who this guy is. So let's get to it. Here's me and the marvelous Blake Morgan having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. out so it's been all of that and um uh i just shot another music video as well after which i ate a pint of ice cream and had three martinis so um i'm i'm in a little i'm in a little celebratory run here for a couple weeks and then i gotta i gotta drill back down into it all you know what i mean so yeah so i have a little moment i have i i'm i guess what i'm saying is i'm taking a little bit of a victory lap so i think you deserve it that's a that's a big effort i don't think I don't think people realize sometimes when an album comes out and you say, Hey, what do you think of the new, whatever album And someone goes, nah. right. And you go, do you know the labor, the labor that went into that? That's right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard to make anything good and, uh, uh, and anything that will last and uh, people don't always know what, you know, what, what, what went into it, but they're not really supposed to, you know, in the, at the end of the day, as an artist and as a music maker, my job isn't to make people feel how hard I worked to do something worthwhile. It's to do the thing that's worthwhile. And, um, and usually if you do something worthwhile, people end up going like, wow, they must've, must've really worked hard on this, you know? Um, so I, you know, it, it, it ends up working out. Um, uh, with that said, yes, music makers lives are, uh, grossly misunderstood, but <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm with you, you know, both financially, professionally, and personally. Indeed. Yeah, and I, I know what you mean. Like the listener is supposed to is supposed to be taken somewhere on some kind of journey. Um, I remember when I first got synchronicity by the police. I was in seventh grade, and I I was very disappointed because I I you know for me as a as a kid it was all about Zenyatta Mondada and uh, Lando Stiamore, and I thought what is this? This is too artistic for me. My twelve year old brain. Right. Um, but of course, repeat listens. Get, reap big rewards and so i i suppose the challenge is how do you how do you make an appeal to a listener to say like this is something you might want to revisit there has to be a couple of threads in there that make them want to come back sure well i love that you just did a police reference because the police <clears throat> have meant the world to me 
uh, and have meant the world to me specifically in the making of this new record of mine. Um, and my other records, um, it's in there. The police influence is in there, but it, I don't think it's I don't think it's particularly overt. And on this one, it really is. I mean, there are there are major league musical homages to to every breath you take, to every little thing she does is magic, to walking on the moon, to all, all kinds of to secret journey, which is a song nobody cares about uh, except me and maybe you. Um, is that on Ghost in the Machine? On the Ghost in the Machine, and I've I've yeah. often said in doing interviews uh, for this new record that I you know this I'm 50, 50 to ninety percent of my musical makeup is uh, is Beatle makeup. Okay, um, so we are what we eat, and I've eaten an awful lot of the Beatles and Jeff Buckley and Radiohead and Neil Finn and. Chris Cornell and all kinds of folks, uh, but the police are huge for me, uh, and Spoon and yeah, I mean, it goes on and on. And Punch Brothers, but the police have been huge for me. But this is really the first record that I've made that I've really taken advantage of of, of their imprint on me. And I've been saying in these interviews that um, you know I wanted to make a record that would evoke a time in music when biting power pop and post punk with big melodies and optimistic love songs. When that wasn't a vice, and and if if the police's ghost in the machine and ACDC's back in black had a kid, that kid would be my record. And nobody's going to listen to my record and be like, "Oh my god, it sounds totally like back in black," or "Oh my god, it sounds totally like Ghost in the Machine." But it's in there, folks. I'm telling you, that's the decoder ring, that's the Rosetta Stone for this for this record. You know, and in terms of what you were saying, you know, artistically, in terms of what people expect, what they don't, um, how you grab them. You know, I, for me as a as a artist, recording artist, songwriter, record producer, I never think about that when I'm making the thing. But then there's a whole other part of my brain and a whole other part of my life, which is that I own and run and I'm the president of a global music company, a record label. And I do have to care about that. And I think one of the things that makes my label different than the next gals or the next guy's label is that what most labels do is they say, how much money do we need to make? <clears throat> and then maybe the good ones go, what's the best music we can afford to make while still making that money? Uh, and what I do, uh, which is one of the reasons I don't have millions of dollars, is that I go, what's the best music we can make? Then we make it, and then we go, oh my God, how do we find an audience for this music? <laughs> so what is this music that would turn us on? How do we find an audience for that music? <clears throat> I've never sequenced a record in my life thinking about thinking how it would help streams or how it would help <clears throat> bring someone in. I always think about how it's gonna bring someone into the record, how it's gonna bring them into the, the music. So Ghost in the Machine starting off with Spirits of the Material World, Every Little Thing She Does is Magic, Invisible Sun. I mean, after 10 minutes of that record, if you can't get into that record, I, then they're, they're just saying, we can't help you, you know? <clears throat> So I like making records like that, that are shock and awe, that it's like, if you're not into it after five or 10 minutes, well, then you know what, you should go somewhere else because you're not gonna like the rest of this either. Um, but uh, you know, in terms of growing and evolving, which is what you're saying about synchronicity. Yeah. Um, you know, the great artists evolve. Uh, and, and of course my heroes, the Beatles are the, are the, you know, they're the poster child for growth and evolution and pulling their audience through their own evolution and the evolution of the time that they were in, such an explosive artistic 
political environment in the 1960s. Every record is different than the one before, but it's still the same band. It's still great melodies. It's still great lyrics. It's still four of the greatest musicians ever to be in a band or anywhere. So they didn't leave anyone behind, <clears throat> but they did pull them through their evolution. And, um, and you know, th that's, that's, that's something that the great artists do. And another hero of mine, Tom Waits, is another example of someone who's done that. Bjork is another example of someone who's done that. Um, Radiohead is another example of someone who's done that. So those kinds of artists do turn me on. Um, uh, and I think there's a way to grow and evolve where you don't leave your audience behind, but you bring them with you, you know? Yeah, and I think the police are a really good example because they, they were my they were my heroes growing up. And I had Andy and Stuart on the show and they were great. Um, but I used to like look in the mirror and try to look like Sting, which I completely don't, but I try to get oh, who his hasn't, eyebrow. Who hasn't know? done that? We've all okay. done that. I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, but they're one of those bands that they're like the Beatles in the sense that in a very short period of time, they transformed artistically with, I mean, if you compare Synchronicity with Outlandos, there yeah. should be 30 years between those records and there's only like six. Um, well, and then, you know, you think of the Beatles, their recording career began in 1962 and they were done in 1969. So in seven years, I mean, it's a century's worth of music and it's the most important music catalog in pop music history going from Love Me Do, you know, to Golden Slumbers, uh, and the love you take is equal to the love you make. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's depressingly awesome as a musician <laughs> yeah. uh, to try to measure up to any of that at, at, at any time. Um, but, you know, I, one of the things that's really excited me about this new record for me is, uh, isn't even so much an evolution um, thing. It's a distillation thing. I really feel like I got it right on this record. And that's not to say I got it wrong on the other records, um, I think I got it right then too, but there's something about this one <clears throat> that I really was able to capture the flavors that I was, that I was, um, that I was after. And also to marry, I would say, you know, I, the, the peak of my songwriting and my singing and my record making and um, so much goes into making a record for me because I am a producer, multi-instrumentalist, multi singer, songwriter. So every, you know, the compression on the kick drum and the adjective I use in the chorus are equally important to me. Um, how I master the record. I, I don't know anyone who's a singer songwriter, who's recording, arranging, producing, playing and mixing and mastering their records at a, at a high level. And uh, uh, I, that's what I'm attempting to do in my life and my career. So it's very exciting on the one hand, um, but it requires a lot of compartmentalization artistically while I'm doing it. And I, I, you know, I hope it's okay to say I really feel like I nailed it this time. Like I'm really happy with, with how it all came together. Um, every time I listen to any part of this record or hear any part of it, I, really, I just smile. I'm so thrilled with it. And that's not always the case, you know? Sometimes you cross the finish line and finish, you know, when you finish a record, you cross that finish line and you're just... You know, you are a marathon runner who staggers across the finish line. You need one of those aluminum blankets and a plate of pasta to get you through the, the you know, the, the next week or so. And like I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on a bender eating ice cream and drinking martinis. So I'm having a good time. <laughs> it's also, it's really satisfying for me to hear you say that you are so artistically pleased with what you've done. I, when I was in graduate school, I remember I, I spoke to um, the poet, uh, Brenda Hillman, and I said to her, because I thought my book was done. I, I had this book of poems, 
Blake, I thought it was finished. I said to her, how do you know when your book is done? And she said, you know it's done when you have a stack of papers, which is your manuscript on a table, and someone walks by and knocks it over, and you don't care what page is face open on the floor. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Right? When she said that, I went, oh, I have a couple in there I wouldn't want to fall face open on the floor. So right. I knew I wasn't right. done. I knew I wasn't done. And so right. for, for you as a, as a musician in the past, were there moments being as intellectually honest as you possibly can and reverse engineering where you go, hmm, maybe, uh, you know, were there, were there? Well, um, uh, no, comma, yes. No, <laughs> I'm very lucky because um, of all of my colleagues, uh, peers, friends, who got, a, a, who got their big record deal somewhere around the time that I got my big record deal at the beginning of my career. I'm one of the only people I know, and I might be the only person I know who really loves their first record. I made a big record at Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas with my great friend, Terry Manning, who's now signed to my label. Um, Terry was the engineer on Led Zeppelin III and he's done all of Lenny Kravitz's stuff and Shakira and, and ZZ Top and Staple Singers and, you know, so I'm working in a dream studio with my dream producer, my great friend. We make, uh, uh, we make a record that I love and it comes out and I love it. And most of the people right around then, and I actually had a powerful moment on the airplane coming back after the very last session. We finished the record, put it to bed, got on the plane and I sat on the plane and I saw my reflection in the airplane window. And I said to myself, really, you know, just staring at myself in the proverbial mirror in the, in the airplane window, I said, Blake, you know what? You have no idea and you have no control really what's going to happen to this record now. The label's going to take it. It's going to be out in the world. And by the way, you could buddy Holly on this plane right now. It could go down right now. You have no control over this. The only thing you had control over was this record. And just remember at this moment how much you love this record, how proud you are. You did it. You did it in your life. All the things you ever dreamed of when you were 11 years old, working on your little four track, and all the records you ever listened to, you want to make a record like this, and you did. And whatever happens next, happens next. But don't you ever forget that you sat on this plane at this moment and felt this way. And it was really important that I said that to myself because I needed it later on as things with the label devolved. Um, and, and I went through a very painful period. I went back to that moment of how much I loved that record at that moment. And I, and I've, and I still love it. I love it to this day. Um, and and it, it's what got me through my, my uh, conflict with the label and probably helped give me the strength to break away from the label and eventually start my own and, and actually have a blossoming career instead of one that crashed and burned to follow through on the airplane metaphor. But I don't really know a lot of, of my peers or colleagues who love their first record, and I still do. And I've loved each of the records that I've made when I've made it. So that's the, um, that's the no, I haven't had that, that secret doubt feeling. The comma is uh, in 2018, uh, this prior to this new record I just finished and, and released, in 2018, I went back through my catalog and the four records I had made to that point. And I said, you know what? Um, I actually think these deserve a remaster. I think that I could really remaster these and bring them together. Um, uh, four different people master those records. I, I have a chance to master them and kind of um, bring some cohesion to my catalog. There are things about them now. I wish they sound a little different. 
and also for the audiophiles of your audience, you know, mastering throughout the years has changed drastically. And records that were mastered in the in the in the early 2000s were part of what's called the loudness wars, where people were trying to make their records as loud as possible, and they crushed all the dynamics out of them and just made them really screaming. And I had a record like that called Burning Daylight, and I really wanted to revisit it and bring some not screaminess to it. And I actually ended up remixing and remastering that record. So, and that, and once I was doing that, I realized how many things about that record and the mix of it, which I had not done, how, how much, of, uh, how many things in that mix I really had never been super thrilled with. And now that I actually had my own powers as a mix engineer and as a, as a producer together, um, I was gonna be able to bring my fingerprint to it the way I do to all the records I make for other artists and myself now, I was gonna be able to bring that um, evolved head, brain to, the, to, the, to that record. And so I remastered Anger's Candy, my first record, I remixed and remastered um, Burning Daylight, my second record, remastered Silencer, this really cool kind of um, candlelit solo uh, singer piano record that I made of earlier songs. And then my most recent record, Diamonds in the Dark, I did the same thing. And this was all prior to this new record of mine, Violent Delights, coming out now. And when I go, when I skip through them, now they all sound, it sounds very cohesive. And I didn't, you know, I didn't George Lucas these records. I didn't go back in and punch a vocal. I didn't auto-tune this. I didn't do any of that. I just remastered them and in the case of Burning Daylight, remixed it in a way that really makes me proud of them. And what it makes me what it made me realize is much like your anecdote about the manuscript falling on the floor, for years when people mentioned Burning Daylight or mentioned Silencer, they're like, hey, you know, I was listening to this song off that record Burning Daylight. I'd be like, oh, great. And there'd be some little part of me somewhere that would cringe because, oh God, is that the one where the guitar on the left is a little louder than the right? And it's probably a little too bright and too crushed and loudness warsy. And now I don't feel that way. And now that I'm, I happen to be getting uh, you know, a lot of attention for the music that I'm making with the new record and, and with all the stuff that I'm doing. Now, when, when I see hundreds of streams coming in, thousands of streams coming in across my catalog for different records, I can just smile because I feel great about all of them. <laughs> you know, uh, and I really honored the spirit of those records without changing the spirit, but really kind of restoring them in a way, the way, you know, my approach to it was, was like, uh, a Renaissance painting that needs a needs a cleaning, but we don't want to actually harm the art on it. I just mm. wanted to kind of, I just want to kind of clean the windshield on them a little bit, so they would be a little more available to the listener. Um, and so I was really proud of those those remasters, and I think that set the stage for this new record. So, you know, ask me again in five years, man. But right now, I feel pretty good about every page in the manuscript. You know, <laughs> well, it's a it's a lovely and refreshing thing to hear because I know some people have you know, contentious relationships with their early work where you can kind of hear those rickety apprentice years kind of um, in, in the gears of the music itself. And yeah. then and there are some bands like, I think U2 or Green Day where, and the Beatles obviously, where it's sort of like, they kind of came out of the box sounding the way they sounded, Nirvana. Right. Um, but that's a very small group of people who um, were fully formed at least from, from the outset. It's true. Um, you know, I, think, I think if you listen to the first song on my first record, which would be Lately on Anger's Candy, and you listen to the last song on my new record, which is Refuse to Lose You on Violent Delights, I think you'd hear the same guy. I think you would just hear like, I think he's probably a better singer now. I think the lyrics are a little bit better now. Hmm. I think he plays guitar better now. I think the, I think, I think the record's a little better, but it's not, it's the same guy. 
And that is such a relief to me um, artistically because I, I, feel, I feel that you know, the, the three real tent poles of, of great art um, are, are originality, quality, and consistency. And consistency is the thing that usually uh, people think of the least and is surprisingly, in my experience, uh, at least as important as the other two, if not more important. Um, uh, a great track on a bad record is a, is a bad example of consistency. You know, <laughs> the Beatles, the police, U2, um, Green Day, Nirvana. These, are these aren't just artists who did a couple cool things. They're consistently excellent in a way where, and, and what the consistency does in my experience is it allows the listener to relax mm. because they trust you, they trust you. And if it's great record, bad record, good record, bad record, great record, same thing of like being a touring musician, you know, great show, not great show, okay show, really great show, magical show, not great show. You can't be like that. Um, they all have to be great or they all have to be good. They all have to be consistent so that the audience trusts you. And once they trust you, um, bizarrely, that's I think actually the mechanism through which um, the magic uh, can actually occur. It's when, it's when they listen and they, they're trusting that you're in charge and that you have a vision and that you're executing it with some aplomb. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that, you know, my friends and I went in those late night conversations where we say the greatest bands of all time. So we figure like, you know, in baseball, it's five great years, right? Where you can, right? And in music, I think it's gotta be three great albums back to back to back, right? Yeah. Um, I can't believe I've never been a part of these conversations with you, you and your friends. You got to call me next time because we're going to talk about the police and baseball. I mean, I came to the right place, man. You did. You did. And, <laughs> so, and I always felt that I, I think the metric is a fair metric. And so I think like the obvious ones, the clash, the replacements, um, mm -hmm. the police, U2, Green Day, those albums are they're there. Right. Um, Absolutely. But there is something a little there's two things. One this is the least sophisticated thing I've ever said, but when I was a kid, I got really into Garfield, right? Oh, I love, I love Garfield. Okay. I, I, I don't care. It. I don't care who makes okay, fun you're of with me. me. You're with me. You're with me Garfield. I bought that first Garfield book when I was like eight and Garfield didn't look like Garfield. He was long and thin. He looked more like Bill the cat. And I was like, what's happening, right? And then as you go, you see him change. And there are bands that have their scruffy Garfield years that become, right? And that, and that can be magical too. I mean, Radiohead yes. very much, Radiohead's very clear that that's how they feel about their first record. You know, they made yeah. that first record. Um, uh, people who don't know Radiohead still think Creep is their biggest song and their best song. And, and the band really started in a lot of ways on their second record. The Benz mm. is when, the, when Radiohead as we know it really began. And, and you know, the, the, the skinny Garfield is there on the first record. And <laughs> I like that record too. I do too. But it's not, you know, but, but it's not, it's not, it's not where they were already on their second record. And the frightening thing, certainly about the Beatles, is, you know, Please Please Me is one of their earliest hits. And there are like 11 things just in that song and in that recording that had never been done before. Mm -hmm. You know, there are chord progressions and there are uses of song form. There's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just appalling how fantastic they were already. But people forget that they'd already been together for a while. Um, and I heard someone talk about the Beatles in a, in a documentary in a way I'd never thought of them before. 
it was about Hard Day's Night, which I watched again last week because you know my mind is attached to my brain and I have to watch Hard Day's Night every every so often. Um, and you know the Beatles really started to get together. John and Paul uh, and George were together in 1959. The Beatles existed in late 1958, 1959, and they broke up in 1970. Okay, the halfway point of that band being together is Hard Day's Night. Hard Day's Night is not the beginning of the Beatles. It's halfway through. But they had the, the fortune of having done 8,000 shows in Hamburg, Germany. Um, and that's, that's not a misquote. It's eight, they did 8,000 shows there. They had done so much work and so much touring and written so many songs that by the time the spotlight was really on them, even as proto-Beatles as they were with Love Me Do and Please Please Me and stuff, they had already done a, a, an absolute metric ton of playing and music and gotten their oils into each other and formed band. Um, and I think that um, in my own way, I was fortunate. Um, I think one of the reasons I really like my first record and I think it's still a really good record is that I had, I had been under the radar for a while mm. and had the chance to have, I, was, I had gone to music school for 18 years and I was gonna be a classical piano player and then rock and roll grabbed me and I was gonna do that. And I'd played in a lot of bands and written a lot of songs that no one will ever hear. Um, you know, there's no YouTube footage of me in my crappy band at the bitter end making mistakes and wearing a headset microphone where I'm wearing a vest with no shirt underneath it. But that happened folks. And I can tell you that and we can laugh because you're never gonna find the footage. So I made a lot of mistakes off stage, if you know what I mean. And then my first record was sort of like, ta-da, here's Blake Morgan. And it's really good. And so I was fortunate enough um, to have my own version of, of appearing to be fully formed, even though I wasn't. But um, I had great help, a great producer. Um, and I had a great, and I'd, I'd spent so much time in the recording studio already that co-producing that record with him, I had a real vision of how I wanted it to sound, where, how I wanted things panned, how, where, how I wanted the vocal to sound, what amp I wanted to use. And, and that's unusual for a first record where most people walk into a studio and just go, oh my God, there's so many buttons. And I was fortunate enough to have not done that. Um, and you were talking about baseball. You know, sometimes baseball players come up when they're 22 years old and they can just hit the cover off the ball. And sometimes it takes them a few years. Sometimes there'll be a 25, 26, or even 27 year old rookie, which is a little, which is older for a baseball player. And they arrive fully formed and they, they have those first five, the first five years of their career are their five great years because they had some minor league training, they had some coaching, they had time to develop. Um, Jackie Robinson, of course, was a 27 year old rookie, not because he'd been in the minors, but because he was black and, and, and not permitted to play baseball, but he debuted as a 27 year old rookie and didn't blink at the major league level because he had played so much baseball and was so such a great player already that he could just come to the majors and hit the ground running. Um, uh, I did not come to the majors and hit the ground running, but I did come to the majors and make a good record. And that's something I could, you know, that, that I, I was fortunate how my life came together ahead of that. So that by the time the spotlight was on me, I had enough of me formed where I could withstand it, you know? And, and in fact, Sting talked about that with the police. He was 27 when they got their record deal. That's right. And he talked about it very clearly that with the fame that came very quickly for him, that if he had been 22, he, he, he's positive that he might've died 
But the fact that he was a little older, he was able to handle the drugs and the sex and the rock and roll because he because he he was an adult. He was a little bit more of an adult, you know. So everyone has their scruffy Garfield years, but sometimes they're not on the radar. That's why I was lucky. Exactly. Yeah. I had my skinny Garfield off off camera. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm I'm pretty sure no one's ever referred to your first years as your scruffy Garfield years. Oh, it's in the pantheon now, man. Let me tell you. Bringing with an activist mother, did that inform your own self-advocacy and later your advocacy for other artists? Because for me, I'm 52. It took me a long time. And, it, and, and I always say it as a joke, but somewhere around 48, 49, I started to say no 
with conviction mm. or started to recognize like, this is not a good situation for me. I need to remove myself from it. It mm. took me a long time to advocate for myself, which is a hard thing to do. Um, do you think that your upbringing with your mother and the work that she did, because it seemed like you early on had a suspicion about the major label and the game that was being played and you were very perceptive, which is very rare. Um, yeah. Is there a link between the two? Uh, Absolutely, and and it's not just my mother. It, it 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 certainly is her, but it's also my father. It's it's the it's the it's the environment that I grew up in. Both my parents, um, being celebrated poets and being celebrated, um, celebrated and reviled by their opponents, uh, political uh, figures in New York City in the 1970s, when being a political figure in New York City, you know, really meant something. Um, uh, and growing up in growing up on 13th Street and Third Avenue in Manhattan, in, in this house above Keel's Pharmacy, where we didn't have a lot of money, but I, but we had this artistic kind of bohemian sort of castle. Um, you know, a lot of kids who who discover that they're artistic, whether it's ballet or being a cartoonist or musician or whatever it is, more often than not, of course, they have to fight even within their family to be able to say like, I think I wanna be an actor. I think I wanna be a writer. I think I wanna be a musician. And it's an act of rebellion. For me, if I had been like, I can't wait to be a tax attorney or uh, have a 401k or, or be a lawyer, that would have been uh, more outside of what was, uh, what was, I was gonna say expected of me. Nothing was really expected of me, but, but, but I never had to fight through a membrane when it was clear that I loved music. They threw everything at me, literature, dance, theater, music, writing, everything, painting. And music was instant for me. And they celebrated that and, and nurtured that. So I never had to fight through that. So that's, so right away I'm born on artistic third base because I, I have, you know, my first solo piano recital, I still have the program that my father made in our Xerox machine for the attendees. And I performed a piece that I wrote in it. So I played like Clementi Sonatina and this little Chopin piece and an Eric Satie piece and a piece I wrote. And my father at the, at the it, it named the piece, which by the way, <laughs> I was five years old. <laughs> and the name of the piece that I wrote <laughs> was called Life and Death. <laughs> at five? Um, at five years old. I knew it all folks, Life and Death. <laughs> And what he did on the program, he said, um, you know, life and death. So it'd be like, you know, um, uh, Gymnopody, uh, composer, Eric Satie, life and death, composer, uh, Blake Morgan. And then there was an asterisk. And at the bottom of the page, you'd see the asterisk and it said world premiere. <laughs> so my father and, awesome. and, and my father, like if he was here, he would be like, yeah. So what, I, I don't understand your anecdote. His point is, this is the world premiere of a piece that my son wrote. This is the first time anybody's gonna hear this, the first performance. You should know this if you're in attendance. He gave my work respect and dignity. And he gave, and he passed that on to me as did my mother with everything that I did. And also with ideas, with political ideas and with political struggle coming out of Watergate in, soon to be in the Reagan years um, that, that the struggle of ideas the struggle, a righteous struggle of uh, towards justice and to try to help bend the, the moral arc of the universe towards justice while being an artist, that these things can be intertwined, um, but that every step along the way, um, 
you celebrate when you can because celebrations are few and far between. So when you have a world premiere, man, you let people know. And as the owner of a record label now, where I have to get out in front and not just promote my artists, but protect my artists, I'm still doing that. Like, here's the world premiere of the video. Here's the world premiere of this single. You know what, at this show, this is the first time I've ever done this new song. To instill some value into the work that you're doing in a world that is constantly devaluing your work, of course, and even devaluing your profession. So I was the kid who would show up at school and I would say, well, I, I didn't say I wanted to be a musician when I grew up. I said, well, I am a musician because mm. I was. So of course it informs me. And it, of course it informs me when I get my record deal and I start noticing that some things don't make any sense. Um, I was always the kid in school who was questioning my teachers. Um, I, I, I love authority. I, I pray at the altar of the authority of knowledge, but I can't stand authority that is uninformed or that's authority just for the sake of authority, you know? Hmm. And so I would question my teachers all the time and I would really get into it with them. And then of course they would say, listen, Blake, you're really disrupting the class. Do you want me to call your parents? And I would say, yes, I do. Yes, I do want you to call my parents because they're gonna say to you, Blake was asking a question. You weren't providing a, a decent answer. Blake is at school to learn. What do you, what, uh, yeah, call my parents right now, you know? Um, so I was, I always had that, which was much more punk rock than I realized it was. <laughs> you very, know? very. And when I got to the record deal part, um, you know, there was this, there's an anecdote I've, I've shared many times where I was, I, I wanted to sit in the marketing meetings because I wanted to know what they were doing. There, the, that label, which was a label started by Phil Ramone and Phil had great intentions for it and his, had a heart of gold, but he'd never run a record label before and really didn't know how to do it. He knew how to make records, but he didn't know how to run a record label. And I wanted to sit on the marketing meetings and the radio meetings because I wanted to know what their pitch was going to be. I made the record, but I don't, it's not that I didn't trust them. It's like, hey, man, I can help. Like, I want to know what's going on. I want to see the sausages getting made. And they didn't want me to do that. And I think part of the reason was I did sit in on a marketing meeting and there were all these people around a conference table and I was standing in the corner and the head of the marketing um, department said, all right, everybody quiet down. Uh, you know, uh, let's start the meeting. What, what's the first thing on the agenda? And one of the people in his department said, well, I've got great news. Blake's uh, record or Blake's song has, de has debuted on the billboard at number eight on the billboard heat seeker chart. And everyone went, wow. And I'm, I didn't know what the heat seeker chart was, um, but I was standing in the corner being like, wow, okay, that sounds good. Number eight on the heat seeker chart, wow. And the head of marketing went, all right, all right, that's great. Everybody quiet down, everybody quiet down. Um, does anyone know how many people are ahead of him? I'm not kidding. That's what he said. And the, the room just got dead quiet. And I said from the corner, hey, Chris, uh, let me just chime in here. I'm not sure, but my guess is if I'm number eight on the chart, there are probably seven people ahead of me. Oh, okay, right, right, right. Okay, cool, good. And that was the beginning of the end for me, which is like, oh my God, the problem isn't what's in their hearts. It's what's in their heads. Mm. These people are dumb. They're dumb people. And they're not music people. And there's no artist I had met to that point who could have possibly made that mistake or been so, and it, was, it wasn't just the mistake he made, it was the complete lack of embarrassment. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. You know, it's like, oh yeah, okay, great. So that, that's good. So moving on. And, and then there were many other, you know, there were many other, parts to that story as to, as to why I had to get out. And I, did, and I did get out. And I got out because I believed in my music. 
And because I, I really felt that if I stayed with the label, um, my career would be damaged, possibly irreparably. And I was validated because once I got out of my deal and left the label, six months later, the label folded. And if I had gone down with them, it would have been like going down on the Titanic. So I, I kind of got off the ship before they, before they sank. And I got out with my masters. They tried to sell me blakemorgan.com for $100,000, by the way. And I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you give me the name blakemorgan.com for nothing. And in exchange, I won't go to the New York Times and tell them that you just tried to sell me my own name to me for $100,000. I don't know where you think I'm going to get $100,000, but... That, that'll be the exchange. You give it to me for free and I won't go to the New York Times and tell them that you just did that. So that's another story. Like the guts that I had to do that, it's, it's because I was created and raised in an environment where I was utterly justified anytime I behaved that way by my parents. You know, My parents were justifying not a rebellious attitude, but a, you've got to be kidding me. That's not a good enough answer attitude. You know? Um, and which is also very punk rock, actually, you know, it's certainly very rock and roll. Um, so of course, you know, um, the, the political nature of, of my mom and my dad and, and who they were as artists, always putting their art ahead of their politics, but their politics following in, in, uh, in, in rapid succession. Um, yeah, it, it, it's informed my life uh, enormously and it's informed um, how I run this record label with, you know, a combination of love and arrogance um, and confidence and, 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 and assertion um, because it's the only way. It's, it's just the only way, more so now than ever. Um, I have to be super confident about the music that we're making, how we're making it and why. And in order to be able to answer that other question that we kind of started with, which is then how, once we make this thing, how are we going to find an audience for it, mm. you know? Um, and if I'm releasing music to me is a lot like, um, it's kind of like you're walking out onto your front porch at night and you're hanging out a lantern. And what you just have to do is, and it's your lantern, it's the lantern you've made. You just have to hope that there are enough moths in the world that will be attracted to your lantern. But what labels do is they just hope that enough moths come. What I'm interested in is enough of the right moths, the, the moths who would be attracted to this particular lantern with this particular bulb at this particular wattage at this particular time of night. That's when you really have an audience that becomes fascinated and connected and emotionally available to your own work. So it's not important to me to have the most fans. It's important to, it's important to me to have the most right fans, the people who would be really interested in my music. And the more, um, the, the, the more focused and the more distilled my work has gotten, the more, well, ironically, the, the, the wider my audience has gotten, mm. but it's been a, a specific kind, it's a specific kind of moth and there just happens to be a lot of them, you know? And, and to put it in just sort of cliche terms, you know, if you don't show people who you are, they're not gonna know who you are. So if you do that in your art um, and in your life, then people have a chance to say, oh, well, that's great, but I'm not interested. Or they have a chance to say, oh, that's great. Wait, tell me more. Um, and I think all of that and all of that thought process um, you know, is, is, a, is a luxury when you're raised in it, when you're sort of just dipped in that every day. That's the environment you're growing up with. And, and there were problems to that too. You know, I went to the United Nations School for 12 years. 
Um, and I showed up on the first day of school and like people were playing with like a Flintstone phone and I had no idea who the Flintstones were. I was like, well, I can tell you who Bobby Fischer is, but I can't tell you who the Flintstones yeah. are, you know? So, you know, I had to kind of find my way on planet earth a little bit as well, um, which has, which, you know, which had its, uh, it, <laughs> it had its challenges and it still does. But, but I'm, I'm very fortunate to have had parents who were artistic and who were excellent excellent artists. My father uh, died, but my mother is, is really not just still working, I'm making air quotes, but she's doing her best work at 80 and 81 as a poet. It's just clearly her best work. It's not even an opinion. It's just so obviously her best work um, that even now that is such a powerful example to me to be like, you know, you can, you can get to your 80s and continue to find a new level of mastery. Um, that's not just an inspiration, it's an example. And, and so it's, it's important to me. I, I wouldn't have that luxury if it, if it wasn't for them. I love how that origin story braided through into your professional career. Um, and really kind of, you know, ultimately your, your point of view about making sure that artists feel empowered and not undervalued um, I just did an interview with the, the guys from the Matches, uh, a Bay Area kind of punk, art punk band who were really incredible and they were on Epitaph, but they dissolved because they had been undervalued and they weren't getting paid and they weren't paying attention to what happened to them. And it, it took a toll. Um, and it's a, it's a tragic story because they were such a brilliant band. But there's a lot of, like Joe Strummer said, on the road to rock and roll, there's a lot of wreckage in the ravine. And I yeah. imagine that being undervalued, being underpaid, signing bad deals, um, led people to sort of get stuck in that ravine and never get out. I, I, absolutely. Um, and, and the reason I was able to get out of my deal was that I had a good deal. And I had a good deal because I fought for a good deal. So I was, I was, I, I had, again, that's, our, that's like artistic third base. I was like, no, no, I want this. I want this. I'm going to want my, I'm going to want my master's back if we, if we have to break this deal. You're going to pay me. I had a seven album deal. Mm. Yeah. So for me to leave after an album, it really broke my heart because I wanted to be one of those guys who was on the same label for his whole career, you know? And I would have been if it had worked out. I really, I really would have been. Um, and the years after that, I really had to find my way. It was, a, it was a very painful crash for me. But out of that crash has, has um, something beautiful really came together, which is that I was, you know, I, I was broke. I was heartbroken. Um, I broke my left hand playing touch football in Central Park. Somebody who I was playing with didn't understand the word touch in touch football and hit me and broke my hand. And I couldn't play for 11 months and I couldn't showcase. And I was also just in a lot of pain. My, my, my little pinky still doesn't go all the way down. Mm. Um, so it was a really bad time. And um, I started recording, you know, because I'd been the guy in my circle who got the big record deal and I'd, I'd, I'd done a lot of stuff in studios. I started just recording and producing uh, all my friends and all the people I knew in, in indie music, um, their, their demos um, on this tiny little 16 track digital uh, Roland 16 track thing that I had on my desk that later became a 24 track that I made a ton of records on. I made Burning Daylight and Diamonds in the Dark on a great console actually. And, um, uh, and I just started doing that and it brought, and then out of that eventually came the record label, right? Where I, I, I started showcasing for other, I followed standard industry advice and started showcasing for other deals. And I had one of these, you know, look in the mirror moments again, where in between these businessy snarky showcases, I looked at myself in the bathroom in the mirror and I said, why am I asking permission from these people? 
to make the music I want. I should just, I should, you know, I, I've got to find a way to do this myself. And this is another great story about my mother, in fact. Um, I was walking down the street with her on Fifth Avenue and 11th Street. We we're on our way to a movie. And I, again, I'd showcased and I'd gotten a couple offers. And I was like, you know, Robin, I, I just feel like it's going to be the same thing all over again. And if I had any guts, you know, all these demos I'm making with people, if I had any guts, I would just start my own label. And I would go to all of them and I would say, you know what, that demo we're making is not a demo, it's your record. And we're going to put it out. We're going to figure out a way to put it out. If we sell 100 copies, it'll be 100 copies. And you know what? Our mistakes will be our own. We'll learn from them. Our triumphs will be sweeter because we'll do them together. Our defeats will be softened. If I had any guts, I would just start my own label. And she turned to me as we're walking. She goes, yeah, you know what? If you had any guts, you would. that is what you would do. And I stopped and I put my hands on my knees and I bent over and I was like, oh, God. And it wasn't because she had said something mean. She wasn't being mean. She was like, yeah, well, you just, you just figured it out. If you had any guts, that's what you would do. And since she's basically saying, since you do have guts, what are you going to do now, kiddo? Right? And I knew that then I was going to have to do it. And I started this, this record label, ECR Music Group. I started it on my freaking laptop, man. I just started it on my laptop. And I did exactly that. I just, we started releasing music that we were making in my recording studio. And all these years later, this is a global music company now distributed by Sony with complete artistic autonomy, still built around a rec my recording studio with artists and peers that I love, like David Poe, like Yonata, like Miles East, like Chris Barron of Spin Doctors, Tracy Bonham's on the record label, Jill Sobiel's on the record label, my great friend, Terry Manning, who started my career and was my producer, and so many others. We have a whole list of imprints on the record label. All the artists own their own masters, ah. license them from the artist. So if you, for instance, had a record, I wouldn't sign you to a six album deal. I would sign the record you made or the record we made together. And then the next record will figure out that, give, that, that promotes you and protects you because it gives you the ability to say, this was great, but I don't wanna do it again. And you can go somewhere else. And people in the industry think I'm crazy for having that model. They're like, what if you work with artist X and you, you grow them and then they start blowing up and Universal comes along and takes them away from you and then they become a big star. And my response has always been, well, if, that, if that's what the artist would wanna do, then the artist should be able to do that. Uh, by the way, that's never happened. No one has mm. ever better dealed us to go somewhere else because I would argue you can't better deal. I mean, this is my, it's my label, so I get to say it, but like, I don't think you can do better. It's, it's like, we're the best, you know? Um, I'm on the label. There was this old, you know, there was this old ad campaign for this guy who used to sell hair transplants in New York City, who, who would say like, I'm not just the president of the company. I'm also a client, you know? I remember him. Well, I'm not sure. just the president and owner of this record label. I'm an artist on it. I'm signed to this label too. My work is signed to the label. I play by the same rules as everybody else. And that's all informed. How I run the label and how its structure works is all informed by the bad experience I had because I never wanted anyone to go through that again, including myself. So, you know, to quote Milton, it's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. But as hell goes, this is pretty groovy, man. You know, hell is where all the rock and roll is anyway, you know? So, well, as, as we know in Paradise Lost, the most interesting character is the devil. Of course, of course. He's <laughs> having the most fun. You know, that's um, where the great music is, so, you know? <laughs> exactly. You know. Well, I mean, you must have seen careers destroyed and, and not been able to be reconstructed. Totally. I mean, my own lawyer at one point called me on a Friday night at 7 p.m. after some showcase I did. And he was like, I don't know, we're just not getting the response out of it. So, you know, 
listen, Blake, I don't want to tell you to stop doing what you're doing, but you know what I mean, man? All right, cool. Have a great weekend. That was the call. What? That was the phone call. And I got, I was like, yeah, man, have a great, have a great weekend. I'll definitely, yeah, see ya. You know, so, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, I, th I think the, the, the saying is necessity is the mother of invention, but so is desperation. Desperation is the mother of invention. For me, it certainly has. Being broke, having to figure out how I'm going to survive in music, how I'm going to make a living, how I'm going to make music that I care about. I'm, I'm simp I even have a song where I say, you know, I, I can always give up later, but just not quite yet. So it's, it's that, you know, uh, the Magic Shop, which is a great recording studio around the corner from where I live in New York. Um, they have actually, they're not really a recording studio anymore. They're, they're a restoration studio, but it was around for 25 years and 30 years. And the owner of that studio, his joke every day was like, here we are, the Magic Shop going out of business for 25 years, you know? And uh, to find a way to navigate all the rocky shoals of the music world at, at, at really the most difficult time in the music world, in music world history, in the digital age here, um, is a supreme challenge. And it's no surprise that my music advocacy with the I Respect Music campaign, how I run my label, how I feel about the artists that I'm working with, you know, it's all intertwined because it, because it, it just is. It's so obviously has to be and, and is if you're going to find a way to survive with autonomy. And that's the most important thing to me. It's I haven't been fighting all these years to survive. Right. I've been fighting all these years to survive with autonomy and the amount of money and the amount of power that I've been offered in exchange for that autonomy, man, you would sit in the middle of the floor and cry forever if you knew. But you know what? Those are the easiest, like you were talking about learning how to say no or no thank you. Those are the easiest no's of all time for me because I'm not gonna give up this autonomy. That's what I've fought for, that's what I've earned. And that's what gives everything that we're doing, all the, all the artists under our umbrella. It's what gives, it's what gives it, it, it's one of the things that gives it value. You know, and One of the things I once talked about with Terry Manning when I was figuring some of this out, because he was such a mentor for me and still is. I said, you know what, Terry, I kind of, I've kind of learned that I, I, like, I, I never really did wanna work on the Death Star. Like I didn't wanna be a part of this mega label thing. I always kind of wanted to be on the Millennium Falcon with a small group of dedicated folks where you're pulling together and you know, you're making it work and you're band-aiding together whatever you have to band-aid together, but you can move faster than the big ships. You can dodge the asteroids. You can zip in and zip out. You can blow up the evil and, and you know, get out with your soul. I've always really wanted to be on the Millennium Falcon, not the big starship or the big Death Star. And he was like, yeah, that, that, that's true. And all of that's true. And that's great. But you should want to be on the Millennium Falcon because they win. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why would you want to be on the ships that constantly blow up? You want to be on the ship that wins. That's why you want to be on that ship. I mean, your analogy is wonderful. And I love the poetry of it, Blake. But honestly, you want to be on the show. You want to be on the ship that wins, which is so true, you know? And, and uh, uh, it's, you know, it, it's a, it, this, is a, this is a struggle that I would, uh, I would choose any day of the week. And I do. Well, also the glue that held that ship together was loyalty, right? Because like, she, there is no more loyal pal than Chewbacca to Han Solo, right? <laughs> right. And That's loyalty right. really is one of is the glue that holds your your whole framework together as well. So that's a it's a dominating and and admirable theme. Well, well, thank you, and and I, I think it's it's an it's a, an asymmetrical advantage that we have in the music world, which is that we actually love each other. And we love the work that we're making. 
and we're pulling together. When I'm finishing a record, um, when I'm mixing a record, I send it around to what I call a red team of other artists on the label, other people I'm connected to. Um, maybe you can be on my red team. I'll send you stuff. It's, it's, when, it. it's when I have a mix um, that's not done, but it's far along. And I want feedback from people who haven't heard anything about the record. It's actually a, a strategy used in high powered law firms. They call it a red team. Um, uh, white cells, white blood cells come in and fight an infection, red blood cells come in and clean it up. And so what a, a big law firm will do, is they'll have a big frontline case, grand jury case, mob case, government case that they'll be working on, but they'll keep a part of their law firm in the dark about it. So that just before they are ready to go to a trial, they'll present the case to their own law firm, to the red team in their law firm and see if the case will hold up. And they're hoping that it'll be attacked. They want the red team to question and attack. Well, you're not making this point or you, you drop this stitch over here. You're gonna lose on this point. And so I kind of do that with this trusted red team of, of, of different folks. Um, I'm stress testing it so that people will say like, man, the vocal's just not loud enough or, or the vocal's too wet or I, I'm not feeling, like, where, where are the symbols or the low end isn't reading. Um, and sometimes it's like, man, I got to tell you, I, I think that I think there's one bridge too many in this song. You know, it, it can be anything, but I want people's unvarnished take on it. Um, not because I'm looking for congratulations. I'm actually looking for anything but. I'm looking at, for how to make it better. And it's really fun when in that red team or on that red team, there are different artists who are listening to one of their own colleagues' work with permission, of course, because that colleague has done the same for them. Mm. So I, we've created an environment of trust, but it's trust where everybody's rooting for everybody else. We all want each of us to succeed and to find our moths and to, and to take the next steps artistically. We're all pushing to make each other's work better and often, often appearing on each other's work and singing backups, playing guitar, playing drums, stuff like that. And it's 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 a beautiful environment that isn't that isn't anathema to 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 pop music. This is how this is how Atlantic Records was, you know. I mean, Aretha Franklin is playing on on Jackson Five recordings. The Jackson Five are singing backups on Aretha recordings. This was what Barry Gordy did at Motown, or or what Ahmet Erdogan did did at Atlantic. Those are the kind of labels I've always wanted. I, I I've always looked up to. Um, they were they were owned and run by 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 excellent musicians. Who were you know? I mean, Ahmet Erdogan wrote Ray Charles's first hit. Mm. You know, so these weren't bean counters. These weren't tech bros. These were artistic individuals whose purpose in having a label was to further the art they believed in, and that's what I'm trying to do. And so the loyalty on the Millennium Falcon is is really important. Um, but we also walk around the Millennium Falcon and artistically say, like, do I look fat in these pants? Can you? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Chewy, Chewy, what do you think of this? Is this, is this blaster too big? What do you think? I don't, I, okay. <laughs> well, the, the, you know, the, the Death Star of 2022, or you can tell we're 80s kids, the, the Blade Runner Tyrell Corporation ah, um, would, be, would be Spotify, right? And so how do you protect your artists from Spotify? And do you think Spotify can continue on, I think of them as being so lawless um, with what they do to artists, how they under, they, their business is to undervalue artists. Um, what, as I know it's a longer question, but- It's a great you, question. Yeah. Um, so Spotify, YouTube, <clears throat> the streaming world <clears throat> uh, is, is, a, is a 
it, it is a cesspool on the one hand, it's also the only pool that exists. And um, uh, these are essentially monopolies that we're dealing with right now. So um, if, you're, if you're an author, you're gonna have to dance with Amazon somehow um, if you expect people to find your work. And then you have to fight hoping to reform Amazon. So as a frontline music advocate in this country about streaming issues, about radio issues, royalty issues for artists, um, you know, I'm forced where I have to dance with these devils. This is a different devil. This is not the devil in, in Paradise Lost. This is, this is, a, this is a different devil. Um, we have to dance with them because I want this music heard. Um, us boycotting Spotify, for example, um, would be like me boycotting the New York subway system. I think the New York subway system really needs to be a lot better and it needs to be reformed. Me not riding on it is not going to get that done. <laughs> me talking about what reforms need to happen will get it done. Also, I don't wanna make choices for my artist. Um, if we were to boycott it, for example, not that you mentioned a boycott, but if we were to do that, I'm now making choices for my artists in a way I, I'm not comfortable making. So the, the, what we basically do is all of our work is on all of these services. We try to do it in as ethical a way as possible. Um, we play the game as well as we can. We do try to get playlists. We do try to get curators to, 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 um, to play our work. You know, playlisting on Spotify and Apple Music is the new radio. So it's incredibly important. Um, uh, we have to do that on the one hand while not ever remotely piping down our outrage about having to do so. And that's what I do in the op-eds that I write, in the speeches I give, in the 200 lectures I've given at universities and colleges, meeting with members of Congress about streaming issues and radio issues and all the issues that face uh, music makers in, in the digital age. I know that this hurts our label. I know that given the choice, Spotify will choose editorially to boycott us, but I don't care. So we have to try a both and approach where we're, we're dealing with the very people who are poisoning the music world. And, we're, and, and yet we're also trying to give ourselves the antidote to that poison. Um, and Spotify in particular is in uh, some serious trouble. You know, they've lost two thirds of their stock value in just about a year. And I think that the question is now really front and center about that particular platform, a platform, by the way, founded and owned by a man who was a music pirate before he founded Spotify. He founded BitTorrent and uTorrent, copied and pasted that platform and made legal piracy, which is Spotify. He is a pirate. He does not understand the value of music. He doesn't value it at all. He thinks Spotify is a media and information company, which is exactly what it is. It is a data company. It is not a music company. But the real question is now front and center, you know, is Spotify going to, going to reform and evolve into a healthy um, uh, platform and business ecosystem, or are they going to be the new next, or are they going to be the next MySpace? And right now it looks a little bit more like the latter than the former. Really? Um, and they're absolutely. And the combination of the outrage over streaming royalties, the fact that they can't grow and make money for artists and labels, um, and of course, now that they've stepped really into the media uh, crosshairs with Joe Rogan, you know, spreading dis disinformation and misinformation um, that is deadly, um, they've 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 stumbled into the culture wars, and they've done so. Uh, you know, it's it's an old story. They're 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 uh, they stumbled into a free speech um, debate without any plan. <laughs> you know, Whoops. and and for and for your audience and your listeners, you know. 
I, I love streaming. I, I wrote an op-ed about this. You can find it online where I talk about how I love streaming. I love the convenience of it. I love having a huge catalog. I love being able to share songs with friends. Sure. Um, I just don't like how streaming services pay me and my artist friends. And it's akin to saying, um, you know, I'm a real fan of electricity. I like the lights. I like being able to cook things. Um, I'm just not a fan of the electric chair. And, um, you know, not being a fan of the electric chair doesn't mean I can't still love electricity. There is a way for streaming to be profitable for everyone, equitable for everyone, um, and excellent. Um, by the way, Spotify is the worst sounding streaming platform there is. Um, separate of even how they pay us, it's the worst sounding. Um, and there are so many better options. Apple Music is clearly better than Spotify. They pay artists twice as much as Spotify. They pay songwriters three times as much. They're more album oriented, which preserves how we wanted our songs played. All this convenience of Spotify exists on Apple. It's at a much higher bit rate. The music sounds better and they pay artists better. So, you know, this, this is a moment where if, if, if you have a chance to make a choice, listeners, you know, go to Apple Music instead of Spotify because you'd be doing something uh, righteous, um, but you'd also get, you, you, your music's gonna sound better. You know, Deezer is another really good option. Tidal's a good option. Um, Spotify is really one of the worst. So, you know, from an artistic and label standpoint, I'm trying to dance with that, um, that particular devil in a way where we're able to retain our souls and we're able to keep moving forward. There's nothing about that that wouldn't be easier if we were paid fairly. But you know what? I'm out there fighting that fight as well. And I, I, I'm someone who can do more than one thing at, at a time. Um, and I have no doubt that we're going to win each and every one of these artistic fights. Um, these, these middlemen who have found a way to inject the words content and pipeline and user into, an art, in, into the um, artistic ecosystem in this country and in the world, you know, uh, I, I do believe it, it's going to take us a while to really fix this and correct it, but, but eventually this will, I think, be a, a dark period um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a longer, uh, in a, in a longer period where people um, uh, really embrace um, both the excellence of pop music and uh, while enjoying the accessibility to it. Uh, before I let you go, do you, do you like the role of being player coach? You're sort of like, to use a baseball analogy, you're like a, like a Pete Rose who was playing for his team and managing his team, um, excluding, of course, the, the gambling. On it. Yeah, yeah let's, that analogy can only go so far, but you know what I mean. Um, yes. Do you like that sort of um, having both roles and is it easy for you to sort of take one hat on and put one hat, you know, take one off, put one on, be the artist, be the, the, the you know, executive, and then back again? Right. I do enjoy it. And I have begun to enjoy it a lot just in the last few years. Um, I was in a lot of pain about it for a long time. Uh, it was, I felt that it was a necessary evil. Um, uh, again, I, 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 hadn't, I hadn't planned to be a record producer um, in the way that I've evolved to be. I didn't plan to start a record label um, in the, and run a record label in the way I do now, <clears throat> but I'm so grateful that I have. Um, I'm still that kid in the marketing meeting wanting to know how things work. Hmm. And this is a great way for me to know how things work. It's a great way for me to look at the artists that I work with in the face and say, here's what's happening. Here's why. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what I've learned. Here's what we're going to try. Here's how we're going to win. Um, so I do love being the player coach. But what I've learned um, 
And I think what changed it from being something of real conflict inside me to something I really celebrate now is that I, I don't even see it as player coach. I see it as, as being a five tool player. I can hit, I can run, I can hit for power, I can catch and I can throw. And that's because I can play guitar, I can play bass, I can sing, I can be a recording engineer, mix engineer, mastering engineer. I can, I can, I can be a music director, I can be an arranger. Um, I can, and, and owning the record label on the simplest terms was, it, 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 it came from a desire to not finish my work and then hand it over to someone who'd screw it up. So the, the campaign in promoting the work and getting it out to those moths, getting it out to the audience, I learned that the, the label is an extension of my artistry. Being a producer is an extension of my artistry. And I would, I would, I would, I, you know, I, I, I would be very surprised if anyone I've ever made a record with ever didn't feel like when I was making their record, it felt like I was making my record in a good way. They felt that their producer was sweating every part of it as if it was his own. Um, because in, in my heart and in my mind, it is my own. Mm. Um, uh, our mutual friend, David Poe, his record is coming out in September of this year. I've worked, I've worked hard on the inside with him on this record. And that record matters as much to me as any record coming out this year, including my own. And I know he knows that, um, but he knows it because it's true. And that's the kind of label I would wanna be on and, and am on. So the conflict in me stopped when it was like, oh God, I'm doing all these things. And some of them were things I never planned on doing. I began to see it as an advantage. I began to see it as, you know, I don't think Superman's flying and super strength begrudges his heat vision or, or ice breath. You know, these are all different powers he's got. Right. And trying to develop these into powers that I have for myself and for the art that I believe in. We're not in the music business. We're in the art business. That's what we're trying to do. It's necessary business part. But this record label is about, is about building a foundation under the art I believe in and getting it out into the world healthily and ethically in a way where it can succeed and find the right audience, you know? Um, so I see it as an extension of those things, um, uh, of my artistry and, and a part, not, a, not, not an extension, a part of it. Um, and when I started to understand that that was true, the conflicts um, melted away because I was able to understand that like, you know, running the label, it does take time away from me songwriting. And me producing a record does take time away from me being on tour. And me being on tour takes, me, takes time away from producing another record. But all of those things together have made me such a better musician, such a better artist. And although it does, they do, these different things do take time away from each other, none of them take as much time away from each other as handing this music over to someone else who will then screw it up. That takes years off your life. Yeah. So it's a bargain that I think I first made out of desperation and then it, be, it, it became a bargain out of necessity. And now it, it's honestly one of celebration and joy. I, I love doing this. And, and someone recently asked me like, what would you do if money was not no object and you had all the money in the world? And I answered without even thinking, I said, I would do exactly what I'm doing. It would just be a lot easier. You know, and that, that's how I know that I must be doing the right thing for myself in my life. Um, if, if that's honestly how I feel, because I do, you know, it would just be easier. I'd be able to do more from, for, for all of this art and for all the artists I work with, you know? 
<laughs> Man, I, I, I love this conversation. I, I'm, I'm so happy we did this. And I think um, I was talking to Dave, we're going to hang out when you come out here to San Francisco in, oh, great. I think in, uh, in October. October. Yeah, I'll October. be there. Oh, that's great, man. I, yeah. I look forward to giving you a big hug. Yes, yes, me too. And I, and I hope you'll come back on the show and, and continue this conversation because it's really, it's, it's so, you're going to find some, some new moths, I think, from, from my, my audience. Uh, wonderful. Well, it's, it's, it's a privilege to be here and, and to meet you under these circumstances and to have a great conversation about music and baseball and, and literature and all this. Man, I, I, you're, I'm, I'm your moth. Thank you so much for this, Blake. I, I'm, I, I love what you do, and this just makes me so happy to talk to you. It's my, my, my honor, my privilege. So happy to be here. I hope to come back. best blake morgan i really enjoyed that conversation and i also really enjoy blake's new album violent delights it is one of those albums you put on and you can't take it off uh ecrmusicgroup.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with blake and his fabulous ecr music crew and one of those crew members of blake's uh david poe will be on the podcast in september when his new album hits Go to alexgreenonline.com to find out what's going on with me. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast. Or feel free to email me, editor, at stereoembersmagazine.com. Don't forget that Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, tell all your friends. We would certainly appreciate you helping us spread the word. And don't forget to visit Bombshell Radio at bombshellradio.com. That is all the housekeeping items of the day. Let's close the show with a longer listen to the title track from Blake's new album, Violent Delights. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio.
everyone's invited to the joyous Broadway hit that New York Magazine calls smart and big-hearted. The prom makes you believe in musical comedy again.